Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly throughout the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll and handed it back to the attendant and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently, and then he began to speak to them. The scripture you just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Church in the library. Kelly is teaching today. This morning is the first uh, Sunday of Epiphany, which means it's generally the Sunday in which we go over the baptism of Jesus and we look at um, how Christ has come to us, uh, or how Christ is revealed in that baptism that, that sort of comes as an epiphany that he is chosen one of God, and God is well pleased. Um, and one of the things that I try to do on this Sunday every year is talk about what I think is one of the, the greatest um, challenges in the church today, is sort of reclaiming our baptismal identity. I think oftentimes we forget what all that means for us. And so I have this joke that's only really funny to pastors, so hear me out, um, is that if, and I guess it's not that funny anyways, um, if you were first, yes, you were really undercutting my power here. Um, the uh, if you were, it's, it's not a. Let's just skip. I never said this is a joke. Uh, I think it's comical, but it's in that dark, weird way. Um, is that if you were baptized as an infant, there are all sorts of books and things you can buy to help you remember your baptismal identity. And so I worked when I was in seminary in the Episcopal bookstore. <laughs> And there were lots of like resources you could buy to sort of bring back that memory of that you were baptized, you belonged to God. Like it became a thing. And so often when you enter churches that practice infant baptism, like we do here, there's there's a there's a thing of water on the inside of that as you enter into the church to mark yourself with the sign of the cross and to remember that you were baptized, that you were marked by God. Um, but in the alternative, if you were old enough to remember your baptism, we never talk about it again. Um, we just sort of let it go because you remember your baptism. Like, why would we focus on that over and over again? And yet, what I think the challenge is, is that remembering our baptism is part of the place where we learn how to be and act and move into the world through whom God has revealed to us. That we are unified with Christ in that. And it's through that that we call God Father, through this identifying with Jesus in the baptism. And so we, this is the, the one time of the year that I talk about this thing that's, that's often out there by where the hymnals are and the Bibles are on the entrance of the church, is that we have this so that as you enter church, that you can remember your baptism. 
I often tell this story of, of the dean of Duke Divinity School, who when he was dropped off for college, his parents didn't say, don't go party, don't go drink, don't do this. They just told him, hey, remember that you were baptized. And he said at that moment, I realized they had undercut almost everything I had had planned by telling me that because if it was just a list of rules, then, then I knew that those were fun. But if I were called to remember what God had done for me, that changes things. Remember that you were baptized. I think we work uh, very hard in the world to get people to remember all sorts of things. But I think one of the most pivotal things we can reclaim today as a church and as a people is remembering our unification with Christ when we hear the same act in which we hear of Jesus' baptism. And, and that's sort of what we, um, Brian read for us during the worship set. This is this um, Christ's baptism is that he gets in the waters. And we'll talk about that in a little bit, but this is also the Sunday we transition towards sort of my plea to read just one gospel all the way through in one setting or two settings. To sort of just have it come into you in a different way. Because I think we learn the gospels in a different way. And so in the back of the bulletin, or up on the screen, this is the nerdiest quote I will ever share with you. But I think it captures some of why it makes sense to read one gospel all the way through, to have it come to you. Each gospel represents an intricately designed religious universe with plot and character development, retrospective and perspective devices, linear and concentric pattering, and a continuous line of thematic cross-references and narrative interlockings. The art of interpretation consists in analyzing the complexities of the nature of the construction and to comprehend individual parts in connection with the total architecture. Very nerdy. Amen. Amen, yes. <laughs> and the word was preached and the preacher sat back down. What, what Werner uh, Kilmer's argument here is that each one of these Gospels is written with a very specific way and meaning and attachment that, that we often forget. So I, this is, we, we, we have this image of Jesus that I say is like a mosaic, and it's good and beautiful, this mosaic image we have of Jesus. And what makes up this mosaic is, is some Old Testament passages, some of our favorite worship hymns, some of the New Testament, some of um, uh, Paul's writings, very little of Revelation for some reason, um, and a Chris Tomlin song. And we go, this is who Jesus is. And I think that that's good and wise and true. But at times, it makes sense to pull out one tile of the mosaic and to look at it closely and to say, how does this make up who Jesus is to us? How does this tell the story of what Jesus came to do in distinct ways? What are the outlines of this shape? What is, what is the place that this has? And so in the email each week, there, for a while, there'll be an audio way to listen through the Gospel of Luke. There'll be a printout way where you can print out the Gospel of Luke. It is quite long compared to Mark, which we did this with. John, we bought copies. It's hard to buy copies of Luke. Um, but uh, uh, it doesn't have chapters and verses to sort of give you the rhythm of just reading it as you would read anything else. Because we um, combine all these stories in our head and we forget that, that some of them are different in each place. And we fill in the blanks of what we want to hear and we fill in these challenges and stuff like that. But I think it's wise for us to listen to one distinct voice as, as he's saying, to tell this story and the ways in which it, they meant to tell it. 
They want you to think through their dark parts. They want you to think through their light parts. They want you to think through how Christ is, is shading in these Old Testament figures, which is different than he's doing it, say, in Matthew or Mark. Um, certainly John is, is, is extremely different than the other three. Um, to sort of hear these in their own voices, because I think when we do that, we'll be drawn deeper into the character of Jesus. Now this morning, we are going to walk through from the baptism, the genealogy that traces all the way to Adam, everybody's favorite. Um, genealogies are always a hit. Um, and then uh, Jesus' temptation we'll touch on just briefly, and then we'll talk about the scene that Chris read for us uh, a little bit too. So if you have your Bible today, I don't often say this, but if you want to follow along in Luke, the end of Luke 3 to the beginning of Luke 4, um, uh, you'll see the sort of movement we're making in the sermon today. Before we get too deep into it, though, the, the image that, that sort of shades and connects all these together in our baptism and Christ's baptism in this movement at this moment in Luke's gospel is the Holy Spirit. What happens is the baptism is that the heavens are open, or, uh, open and the, the Spirit descends upon Jesus. The Spirit then leads Jesus into the wilderness, the Spirit then brings him into Galilee in power. And at the, at the beginning of the passage that Jesus read from Luke, that Chris read for us, that was complex, um, he says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That the Holy Spirit is sort of the stream that connects all these things, and it gives you a sense of the shape of what Luke is doing with the Spirit. Now Luke is different than all the other Gospels, and this is something... Uh, I'll say now, and we may touch on it as we're going through it, is that Luke has a second part, the book of Acts. Now, in our Bible, we have uh, John sandwiched in the middle, but it would make more sense for Luke and Acts to run into each other. Because when we see this baptism, and then John right before the saying that Jesus, the one who comes after me, will baptize with, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And if you were to read all the way to the end and then start Acts 2, what happens at Pentecost is the disciples are there together praying, and what they receive the Spirit with wind uh, and with fire. And so the story then makes more sense. As, and as we go through Luke, we, sorry as I said, I didn't explain, we'll stick with Luke all the way till Easter. So every reading, every sermon will be on the Gospel of Luke all the way till Easter. And there will be times where we allude to Acts to give more meaning to the stories we're going through. That goes to this point of reading them all the way through and beginning to let them get into us. And so the Holy Spirit is what pushes each one of these stories, but I, but I sort of wanted to divide each one up into sort of different ways of looking at them. The first story, I think, critically has to do with identity. The identity of Jesus becoming the chosen one of God. The one Jesus hearing from God in this scene. Jesus at this point in the Gospel of Luke has really only been involved in being presented at the temple, um, but he was 40 days old. And then he is at the temple around when he's 10 to 12 and his parents have lost him. And this is sort of his first full scene where the story zooms on on him and it will continue with him pretty much throughout the rest of the Gospel. And this scene in which we first hear that is that Jesus gets into the waters of baptism um, and is baptized. And while he is praying, the Holy Spirit depends on him like a physical form, is what Luke says. The first thing is I want to draw out about this image that I love about this scene is if you can't see at the bottom right and the bottom left of this image are 
the sea creatures coming to attack Jesus as he gets into the water. That Jesus enters into the waters of chaos. For the early church, it was very, very hard to answer the question, why was Jesus baptized? They still had the memory that John's baptism and the baptism was for the repentance of sins. Christ was without sin, as they had, they had discerned, and so why would Jesus need to get baptized? Why would Jesus enter into the waters? One of the ways that they sort of caught this, and these, this iconic, 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 no, iconography. Iconography. No, that's the no. one. Iconography. Iconography. Thank you. Nice. I can see it right now, but I couldn't nice. see it. <laughs> iconography is very, very old. The images that make up the icon, uh, iconography. Icons is very old. Uh, the, the stuff you think you should practice before you preach and the stuff you should have never really connected to. Well, I got that down. Uh, iconography, well, that's a hard. Apparently, I should have. Um, they are, they're very old, and what, they're, what they found, and if you read these early writers, is that Christ gets in the water for a bunch of reasons that we would think, and one of them is that he sort of re-enters into this creational mode, and so if you were to read back to the book of Genesis, is that there are, God's spirit is hovering over the watery chaos, and the spirit, um, and through that, uh, God's voice speaks out and calls order out of the watery chaos, and that's how the world is sort of created in the book of Genesis. And what they saw was that, that Jesus enters into the watery chaos himself. They have a new creation sort of happening here. And when he enters into the watery chaos, he brings his own order out of it. And so Christ is one who enters into the chaos. Rowan Williams, in this book that I brought up here that I uh, lost for a second, he says, this suggests that the new humanity that is created around Jesus is not a humanity that is always going to be successful and in control of things, but a, man, uh, that, but a humanity that can reach out its hands from the depths of chaos and be touched by the hand of God. And that means that if we ask the question, where might you find the baptized? One answer is in the neighborhood of chaos. It means you might expect to find Christian people near those places where humanity is most at risk, where humanity is most disordered, disfigured, and unique. Christians will be found in the neighborhood of Jesus. But Jesus is found in the neighborhood of human confusion and suffering, defenselessly alongside those in need. If being baptized is being led to where Jesus is, then being baptized is being led toward the chaos and neediness of a humanity that has forgotten its own destiny. And Williams adds, I'm inclined to add that you might also expect baptized Christians to be somewhere near, somewhere in touch with the chaos of his or her own life. Because we all live not just with an outside chaos from ourselves, but with a, quite a lot of inhumanity and muddle inside of us. A baptized Christian ought to be somebody who's not afraid of looking with honesty at the chaos inside, as well as being where humanity is at risk outside. The identity that Jesus comes in getting baptized is one that enters into the chaos of humanity. And so we too, as we are joined in baptism of Christ, become those who can enter into the neighborhoods of chaos. 
can enter into where humanity is at risk. We can enter into spaces beyond us. And what I love that Williams adds there that often we can forget is the chaos exists and resides inside of us as well. Christians, those who have heard this identity through being joined with Christ. For us, when we remember our baptisms, we remember, too, that the Spirit comes upon us like a dove. And the voice from heaven says to us, as it said to Christ, this is my son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. This is a scene for us to remember, too. But lest we forget that this is not the only part of, of baptism, um, it's here we find unity with God in which we also are able to cry out to the Father. When we pray to the Father, we pray from Jesus' spot. But the story that, that intimately follows this is this one of testing. In all three of the Gospels, Jesus is baptized, he hears this word, and then he's instantly led into the wilderness. It's um, something you could think about for hours, I think. Why is it that when Christ um, hears this name over him, hears that he, uh, from the heavens, that this is whom I want, whom I am well pleased, that instantly after that, the spirit that has come upon him leads him out into this place of testing and trial. I think for myself, if I say I am a son or child of God, and I've heard that claim in my baptism, the place I expect to go next, which happens to disciples later in the Gospels often, is to the right hand of the Father to sit in glory and to be accepted in all goodness and honesty. I can't be alone in that, right? <laughs> we assume that if you're a child of the Most High, that there's some benefit to it. But what happens in Luke's Gospel, what happens in the three other Gospels that tell this story, is the benefit to it is that you are led to contend with the adversary that has his own kingdom that is continually destroying creation and humanity. Sign me up. <laughs> but I think that there is a truth to this. That if you're going to hear from God in this world that God has, has placed his spirit upon you, and that this world still exists in dysfunction and disorder, then it becomes part for you to enter into that. To contend with that which is tearing down God's creation. To contend with that that is disordering and disfiguring. What is great about this part of it is, and great about all these things, is Christ does it first, and we move into those places. So the story that, that sort of overarches on this one, we did Genesis in the first one, is the story of, of the time in the wilderness for, for the Jews. As they spent 40 years in the wilderness, and they failed continually. But what happens with Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, where he too, and it's, it's great because almost all these quotes come from the book of Deuteronomy in this story, so it's like, want to contend with the devil? We're in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, bad selling points for churches. Um, but there's this, there's this means in which Christ sort of enters into this spot as one who's the wholeness of Israel going there. And where Israel fails, Christ succeeds. Where Israel stumbles, Christ restores what humanity was. And so as Christ restores humanity in his baptism, he restores humanity in its, its trials and testing with God by going faithfully through it. By being the one who can walk that way, do that path. 
But there's another story in between these stories, which is the genealogy I mentioned, which uh, I didn't want to make anybody read out loud to us. But it's this long genealogy that goes backwards and ends with the son of Adam, the son of God. Christ takes on this, and we find this more in Paul, this role of Adam again. But what happened is where Adam's temptation came was in the garden. Adam was tempted within the garden of humanity, or the garden of Eden, sorry. Uh, this place of beauty and perfection, and he stumbles and falls there. And he's cast out into the wilderness. Christ, receiving his identity as a son of God, similar to what the scripture argues Adam is aware of, that he's one made by God, doesn't go to perfection, but he goes to the wilderness to restore humanity again. He goes as a second Adam, one who withstands the temptation, but he doesn't get the temptation in the garden. He gets it in the place of trial in the wilderness. So Christ goes in the wilderness as a second Adam who is faithful for us. I think what, and the temptations are very human temptations. It's often People use this passage to talk about um, uh, that if you wanted to beat the devil, you just repeat scripture back. But their third temptation, the devil actually quotes scripture to Jesus, which then becomes a different challenge, right? It's not just quoting scripture back. There's a wisdom involved in it. There's this way of knowing who you are and where you are in God's story that's proportionate to understanding these things. And I think what we find is that as Christ resists these temptations, that we in our lives are sort of placed in the spot of knowing that this one has been disarmed. This one, while it seems like it still has power in this world, Christ is sort of bound up in this spot. Seems like there's still power there. And it's a, the theologians talk about this. It's like the, the last shot in the war has been fired, but the, the news that it has ended hasn't reached everyone yet is that what we find is that Christ is defeating this one so that we, while it still has power, we can heal the Spirit's guidance into the fullness of, of the life that God has for us. Is, is that this isn't one who, who tempts us in the same way that Christ was tempted. Um, we resist in ways, but it's not the same temptation that he went through. And what it says is when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left them until an opportune time. Now again, if you read the Gospel of Luke all the way through, the devil shows up again. The opportune time is when he enters into Judas at the Last Supper. Um, he moves into Judas at the Last Supper. So if you read this in its extent, it's like the devil has been bested here, but as he waits for the time of crucifixion, he waits for the time to attack Jesus again. And this time Jesus willingly goes to that place in that moment. And this, this, these stories kind of tell the gospel in miniature, I think, in a lot of ways. But the next one is this announcement of the kingdom. Jesus, the spirit descends on Jesus in the baptism. The spirit leads him into the wilderness and then leads him back into Galilee. And the news starts to spread about him. And he goes to his hometown, Nazareth, and as is custom, he gets up to read scripture and they hand him a scroll from the book of Isaiah. Um, and he reads... Uh, the passage appointed for him 
which is the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to cover the freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is, uh, my friends call it, the Jesus Manifesto for Luke. Is that Jesus is describing what his ministry will do and look like, what the shape of his kingdom will be throughout the book of Luke. He's proclaiming this year of jubilee. He announces who he will be in the world and who, who his, what shape his kingdom will take. It's a powerful passage. And it's about God gathering up the Jews in exile and bringing them back. But what Jesus does is he, he's, he turns this at the end and says that he's going to go everywhere announcing this good news. In the story after Chris read us, is they tried to push him off a cliff, then he makes his way up. But Jesus is announcing this good news, and people are ready to receive it, but he says it's good news for everyone. Now this is what's amazing about this story. If you want to know why the people turn on him so fast, is because if Jesus is going around Galilee and the good news is reaching them that he's doing these good things. So imagine um, somebody from Glenwood Springs won the lottery. And they come up from Grand Junction. I don't know why, but let's just say they come up from Grand Junction. They would come up from Denver, but I don't know all the towns between here and Denver well enough. So he comes up from Grand Junction, and he's building and giving away money in the back. Um, just follow along. And then Rifle, and then uh, Silt, and then Newcastle. And he gets to his hometown of Glenwood Springs, and we go, oh, this is where the good thing is going to come. This is where this one is going to do something marvelous. And the marvelous thing that he does is he says, uh, he announces that uh, he's going to run for president. And that's it. No new football stadium, no new CMC campus, no new hospital. I'm going to run for president. We, too, would find the most convenient cliff to run that person off of. <laughs> And what Jesus does is he seems to do that, is he comes back from, from sort of the town surrounding, and he gets to his hometown, and they say, is this Joseph's son, right before this passage? Is this Joseph's son? Something good must be coming from this, coming to his own town. But then he tells them the little parable about how that these people are not welcome in their own town. Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what you have done, that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut in three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah did not, was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Yet there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus tells them that you guys need to hear this news as the good news. It's not the signs that I will perform here, but the announcement of what God is going to do through me. And what causes that, that he's going to go to others, is what gets him ready to be pushed off a cliff. And he reads this, this sort of reading, and he says, Today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today what Isaiah has prophesied has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, we have a time after our sermon where people get to, to sort of ask questions in this. And you can imagine somebody saying, uh, Jesus, 
You said today it was filled in your hearing. Now, people, the people were amazed. Um, that's the harder one. I can't quite crack the knot on one who says that they're all amazed. But they still are in captivity to Rome. They still are blind people. Debts have not been forgiven fully yet. And we've talked about this as we've been hitting on Luke a little bit in the Christmas season, was that, that what happens when the Spirit seems to come on people in Luke, and we see this in the book of Acts, is that they gain the vision to see what God is going to do as if it's already been done. Mary's song, when she proclaims that he will destroy the mind of princes and all this, is all past tense. God has already done this. When the Spirit comes upon us, we gain the ability to see the world as if God has already completed his mission. Because in some ways, with the revelation of God, he has. So, uh, Gerhard Lofink, one of my favorite commentators on the gospel, says, It wasn't only in Nazareth that the day of the gospel was not accepted. Later, also in the course of the church's history, it has again and again been denied or rendered toothless. The reason was the same as in Nazareth. Apparently, it goes against the human brain for God to become concrete in our lives. Then people's desires and favorite notions are endangered, and so are the ideas about time. It can't be today because that would mean our lives would have to change today already. Therefore, God's salvation is better delayed into the future. There can lie hygienically and snugly packed at rest in consequential. What is for us today in hearing these stories of our baptism in Christ is today we have become sons and children of God. What is for us today in hearing the story of the temptation is that today Christ or Satan has already been bound in many ways. What is today for us in hearing how the Spirit drives him back in the galley to announce his kingdom and for us to hear the news of the kingdom is that today these things are already becoming undone. There's a classical saying about the sacraments that they're uh, baptism and Eucharist are the sacraments that we practice at Defiance Church, but the sacraments are uh, an invisible sign of a visible grace. Um, no, the visible sign. See, I always get it backwards. They're the visible sign of an invisible grace. They're the visible manifestation of this thing that is invisible to us. I think so it is for the church to be in hearing this today in the Gospels. The church gathered here, the finest church, the churches throughout the valley, the churches throughout the world, are to have the um, boldness to say that the church can exist in this kingdom as a visible sign of the invisible grace that God has done. This is the place in which we come to hear of what Christ has announced to us and for us. I have one last thing to say, um, and I think it catches this, this movement that sort of begins Luke's gospel, is uh, this Eucharistic ecology, is, as people call it, is that taken, blessed, broken, and given. That we've recently moved so that the table sits at the center of our service, that communion sits at the center of the service, so it's not 
the pulpit that sits at the center. It's not the music team that sits at the center, but it's both the communion, the cross, and, and in another way, the word that sits at the center of who we are. And the thing I love about this phrase, and Henry Nowen took this to talk about what is the life of the beloved, if you're familiar with his book, is that he takes, Christ takes the bread as he takes us. Christ, in our baptism in Jesus, and God, bless the bread, and the Spirit descends upon it. Well, I think so far. But in contending with the world, and moving to our own crosses, as Christ calls us to do, the bread is broken, and it is given for the life of the world. This is an image for us as it is for Christ, is that we are taken, we are blessed, and we are broken. And so as we remember being caught up in the story of Luke, and as we continue through, I think a lot of it, we can, we can come back to this opening scene of wherever challenged or provoked to remember that we've been received, to remember that this power of darkness that seems to distort our world even today is fading, and to find ourselves drawn into the kingdom that Christ announced today. Let us pray. God, you teach us through story. Through the story of Christ's baptism, we find humanity restored. We find you willing to enter the waters of chaos. We find ourselves called into the way that you called your son, and the Spirit to descend upon us in prayer. The story of your temptation. We're taught that one who comes to us in many different forms and ways and offers us things that appeal to us. We're taught that we can't live on bread alone. Taught that we are to worship your, the Lord your God and serve Him only. At the end, we're taught not to put you to the test. And so we hear the story of your Spirit bringing Jesus back into the country, to Nazareth, where He announces this kingdom that we will see continually play out in Luke. This kingdom that we pray come in the Lord's prayer. We ask that you may strengthen us to hear the today of the gospel. Take back our identities in Jesus. And to become the visible presence of the invisible grace you enacted in the world when you come. We ask all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.